All right. Well, good to see you guys this morning. Good to uh, worship together. I think the, that song, uh, especially the, that last song, just, just reminding us that Jesus is still on the throne is always uh, an important reminder to us that when, uh, when we're going through things, to just keep that in mind. Well, we're going to get started. Um, again, uh, thanks, Daryl, for reminding us about September 11th, um, 20 years ago. 21. 20, 21. Yeah, okay. I lost a year. It's been a year. Um, but uh, what an interesting thing. I'm sure you can, many of you who are uh, old enough to have been in the middle of that, I'm sure you remember exactly where you were at. It was, I remember certainly where I was at. I was moving cows into a corral because uh, I used to be a cowboy and uh, bringing some cows into a corral. And, and one of the guys came up and said, wow, man, you're not going to believe what happened. And began to tell me what had happened. I was like, wow, I can't believe it. So anyway, um, to, uh, along you know, with the family meeting outline, I do want to speak a little bit this next week, this next time that we get together. Um, I think it's important that I, I speak into this a little bit too. And so um, I am going to take a little bit of time uh, to talk about uh, some of the things and where we're at. So let's get into Mark again. Um, if you're new here, we want to extend a really, uh, just a, a very uh, gracious welcome to you. We're so grateful that you're here this morning. We're thankful to worship with you. If you're looking for a church home, we hope you might find one here. Um, and, and if you wouldn't happen to maybe find one here, we also want to let you know that there are a number of fantastic churches within our local community here, and it's our deep heart that you would find a church home and not just attend church but truly plug in and become a part of church life as well, wherever God might lead you to. All right, so we're in Mark chapter 11, and this morning we're in verse uh, 12. No, I'm so, uh, no yes, verse 12. And, and, and some interesting stories kind of going on. Remember, last week we talked about Jesus, and we talked about his triumphal entry. As, as Jesus came into Jerusalem mounted on a donkey, on the foal of a, of a donkey, a colt, it said. And, and remember, we talked about that, that idea, the imagery, and what they would have understood is, as Jesus entered into uh, the Jerusalem, mounted on a donkey, he would have represented a king who was coming to seek peace. And, and, and so certainly that, was the, that is the mission, that is, is the reason that Jesus came. It's the reason that he's coming into this week that we would call the Passion Week. Um, this, this final kind of culmination of Jesus' ministry. And, um, and, and he comes into, uh, up onto the Mount of Olives. And remember, that it, it just says that there are all kinds of people. And they're crying, Hosanna, which means save us, deliver us. Um, and, and they are proclaiming him to be king. They're throwing their coats in front of him. They're throwing... Um, uh, palm branches in front of him, and they're making the declaration that you are the king and that you've arrived as king. And, and so really, in, in, in one of the first parts of Jesus' ministry, we really see him being acknowledged for exactly who he is. And, and we talked about this, this thread of truth that just is going through the whole of this that, that can't be wavered by belief. It can't be changed by belief. It just is. And regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what we see unfold as, as we move forward, we remember that he is the king and he's victorious. And so we also talked a little bit about his return, how when he returns, he doesn't return as the lamb. He, he came that time as the, as the lamb that would 
pay the penalty for sin, who would take upon himself the, the curse of sin and pay the penalty for it so that you and I might have a relationship with a holy and righteous God. But when he returns, he returns as the righteous judge. And it says that he returns on a horse, that he comes to, to bring judgment uh, to the world. And, and again, we talked about, we've, we've got to sometimes get a hold of that idea that, that that's a reality, that this is a reality, that we are eternal beings and everyone will spend eternity somewhere. And everything about where one spends eternity is, is tied to the relationship with Jesus. Are we in relationship with him or not? And that's, that's the thing. We talked about the stones and, and all of creation bearing witness to, to who he is and, and, and why he has come, that, that all of creation just gives testimony to the reality of God. In other words, when we look to the creation around us, it should remind us, we should, it should be obvious to us that there's a creator. And, and so we talked too about that, that, that what is being spoken, it's, it's the same today. People who, who try to come in, in judgment against Jesus only make a testimony against themselves. You, you see, that very testimony against him is the very testimony that will bear witness against them in the final judgment. And, and so, so Jesus talked about, too, the, the, these rocks and how they, they bear witness, and, and that if, they didn't, if the people didn't do what they were made to do, which was praise God, that even these rocks would cry out. <clears throat> so let's take this up. Let's, let's read through this, and then we're going to work our way back through it. So Mark chapter 11, verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. So kind of some interesting um, stuff here. Some things that begin to kind of challenge us with, like, the idea of Jesus and who he is. It, 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 it's very troubling to some these passages. Um, 
Some people have, have tried to make a case against Jesus and the deity of Jesus using these very verses right here, saying that Jesus is like, this isn't consistent with, with, with godly behavior or, or that Jesus just seems to be kind of off the rails and, and just kind of angry and mad and just doing these things that really just don't make sense. Now, let's remember, too, that the triumphal entry did not end in Jerusalem. It ended at the temple. If we went back and we looked at, at, at what our teaching was last week, we would see that Jesus has already been to the temple in his, in his triumphal entry, and he went and he checked it out, and he saw what was going on. It says then that he retreated out, back out of the city, and he went to Bethany. So Bethany means the house of the poor. Beth, Bethel is, is the house of God. Bethany is, is the house of the poor. Isn't it interesting that Jesus would choose that place to go and to stay? See, the, the rich people would stay in Jerusalem. That's like where all the, you know, it's, it's like anything. It's like when there's a big event and there's a lot of stuff going on and a lot of people coming into a community, right, the, 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 the prices go up. <clears throat> Same thing here. The, the prices have went up. And so only really the wealthy tended to stay in Jerusalem during this time, the Passover time. This is a big deal and a big event that's happening for the Jewish people. But see, these, these verses, when we begin to look at it, they begin to challenge us with, with like, well, what is this? If we believe that Jesus is sinless, then, then we know that in this, in nothing here, did he sin, right? And, and, and so, but what we see is that we're not really looking at nice, fluffy lamb Jesus here, right? We see kind of a different side of Jesus in this, and we see kind of this righteous indignation and this righteous judgment. This, this all unfolds in a very on-purpose manner. As a matter of fact, is what we see is we see the fig tree, and then we see that sandwiched with this story of the temple, and then the closing, and that's on purpose. Um, this is, all of these events and the way that Mark has laid this out is kind of this sandwich, and the reason that it's sandwiched like this is because it, it, uh, they, they totally pertain to one another. When Jesus begins to address this idea of, of the fig tree, um, he's beginning to talk about Israel. And, and maybe even also, too, in particular, about the temple and things that are going on there as well. So I've called this this morning kind of looking closer. So let's kind of we'll go back through this, and let's look over this, and let's see what we can pull out of it a little bit. Now, remember, Jesus, when he's in Bethany, he's most likely staying with, with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We already saw last week that it, it, John showed us that many of the people that were at the triumphal entry were there because they had seen the raising of Lazarus or they had heard the testimony of that. And, and so now Jesus is back out of the city and he's staying with his friends. Isn't it interesting that Jesus would also not just stay in the house of the poor, but that he would also choose company with those who love him for who he is, not what he can do for them. So Jesus is, is there. He's hanging out there. And then we see this story unfold. It says that he's, they're basically they're back on their way back into um, Jerusalem. And it, and it says this. It says, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So 
I mean, doesn't this seem totally like out of character and, and like wrong? And, and it's like this poor little tree. What did it ever do to Jesus? You know, Jesus, are you so stressed out? Are you struggling? What's, what's the deal here? So it says that Jesus was hungry. And, and what's interesting about this is that, is that basically what happened is that he looked, and from a distance, he sees this tree, this fig tree, and it's all leafed out. Now, here's a cool and interesting thing. It, it tells us on purpose that this is not the season for figs. The season for figs would happen later in like what would be August or so. But a very interesting thing is that when, a, when these trees would leaf out, there would be kind of a first crop. They called it the Breba, the Breba crop. And this would happen on the old growth of these, um, of these fig trees. And, and so when Jesus went to this fig tree, even though it wasn't the season for figs on the new shoots, because that's where the, that's where the, the, the crop comes that would come in, in August. It would come from the, from the new shoots, but from the old shoots, this is the place where there was supposed to be fruit. And so when he went, because the tree was fully leafed out, he also went with the expectation that he would find fruit on it. And it says that he was hungry. That he had a desire for something that would satisfy him. And when he got up to this, to this tree, it didn't have it. So one of the things to, to think about, I mean, it's so if we think about this and we start to say, well, what are some of the takeaways from this? One of the takeaways is this, that from a distance, it looked really good. But on a closer inspection, there was no fruit on it. It looked good on the outside. It looked good from a ways off. But when you got up close and you really got to figuring out what's going on with this, you start to realize, well, wait a minute, there's there no fruit on this. There's nothing to satisfy in this. And so this tree becomes a prophetic object lesson. That's what Jesus is doing here. And, and it wasn't uncommon at all for the prophets of the day to bring something to use as an object lesson. Maybe it's a plumb line. Right? Maybe it's laying on your side with no clothes on for a long time, <laughs> prophesying. And there's all kinds of object lessons um, that the prophets brought with them. And so Jesus takes this tree and he turns it into an object lesson. And the fig tree is, is tied in Scripture with the idea of Israel. Look at a couple of verses here. Jeremiah. 8, 12, and 13, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Now, remember, sometimes some of this stuff is lost on us, but it wouldn't have been lost on them. Hosea 9.10, like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit of the fig tree in its first season, I saw your fathers. But they came to Baal, Peor, and consecrated themselves to the thing of shame and became detestable like the thing they loved. Nahum 3.12, all your fortresses are like fig trees with first ripe figs. If shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. 
And so again, when, when Jesus went, he went thinking that he was going to see, that he was going to be satisfied by this fruit. And then now he's made this tree into an object lesson that really deals with the nation of Israel and the temple and what all of this was supposed to mean and what the function of these things were supposed to be. So this represents the temple, the nation of Israel, and quite possibly even the era of the law, which is about to come to an end. Because what's interesting about this is that Jesus is, um, as he's cursed this tree, and this tree withers that bears no fruit, it makes room for this tree to be cut down and for a new tree to be planted that will bear fruit. We see kind of we kind of see a little bit of that in in Matthew three ten from from uh, from John the Baptist, and he says this: Even now the axe is laid to the roots of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So we're made to bear fruit. This is part of who we are. Just as we are made and created to praise God, to sing his praises, to, to make him known, to make him famous in the world around us, our life is also meant to bear fruit. Now, make no mistake, we don't bear fruit by just going out with the purpose of trying to bear fruit. The fruit that we bear has everything to do with where we're rooted into. That, that God isn't calling you to go out there and, and make good fruit and go do a bunch of good stuff. What God is calling you to is to be rooted into him. To be rooted into Christ, right? Jesus says that, that, that he is the, 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 the vine and we are the branches, if we abide in him and him in us, then we will bear much fruit. You and I in the church are called to bear fruit. So then the text takes this interesting turn, right? And now, we, now from there, we depart from this. We depart from this idea of, of this and we look at the temple. And it begins, and remember again, that Jesus has already been to the temple He's already seen what's going on, and as a matter of fact, the Bible gives two accounts of a cleansing of the temple. John in chapter 2, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, shows Jesus going in and doing this very thing again uh, early on, and then this is the, the finish of Jesus' ministry, and we see once again that Jesus is going back in and he's cleansing the temple a second time. So let's look at this. So they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So, so what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is corruption. Jesus has went, and he's gone to the temple, and he's went to see the temple and what's going on. And what he's found isn't the temple functioning as it should. What he's found is corruption on the inside of the temple. And so what's happening now is that, is that there are these money changers, it says, that he overturns the tables. So if you wanted to go into the temple and you wanted to give an offering or you needed to buy something for a sacrifice, you had to trade whatever currency you had for shekels. The shekel was the acceptable currency for the temple. So everything had to be traded into shekels before it could then be um, used in the temple. Now, these guys, whenever they're, they're having this service, they're, they're, they're charging exorbitant fees for this service. 
They're, they're charging way too much. And not only that, but it's very highly likely that Caiaphas, the high priest, is, is, is profiting by giving them the good seats within the temple where you can make the most money. There are accounts out that, that say that basically that the dove that was the sacrifice for the, for the person who was poor cost 25 times what a dove cost inside of the, if you purchased it inside the temple. And so then what happened too is that you had people that were bringing their doves from the outside of the temple and the priests are looking at the dove that they brought in and saying, oh no, this one's just not good enough right here. This one's got a blemish on it. You're gonna have to purchase one from in here. So Jesus basically overturns the tables and he begins to run out not just the purchasers, but also the buyers, it says. Kind of an interesting little thing there. But he runs, he, he overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold the pigeons or the doves because it's corrupt. In John, when we see this, we see that Jesus actually fashioned a, a, a whip, it says, and drove everybody out. Well, let me just clarify that. Jesus didn't take a whip and start beating people. Jesus took a whip and he drove the livestock out. And the livestock were the currency and the people chased the money out of the temple. It's kind of what happened. But Jesus, all of this, see, Jesus has been to Bethany. He's, he's, he's been thinking about this. this. This isn't just something where he just went in and just flipped out on everybody. It's very calculated. Guess what, too? Jesus went into his house and did this. He didn't go into somebody else's house. This is Jesus' house. And he went in, and he, and he begins to, to, to rid the place of corruption. <clears throat> it says, verse 16, that he wouldn't allow people to carry through the temple. So what's happening there? Well, well people who are selling their wares and all of that kind of stuff are using the temple and the gates of the temple and the pathway through the temple as a shortcut. The temple sits in the central place. And so instead of going around the temple to, to get there, they're just cutting through. And so this is creating just all kinds of, of, of chaos within the courts, the court of the Gentiles in particular. So, so the temple is laid out in particular that the closer you get to the presence of God, the more exclusive it is and the more privileged it is to be there. So the outer courts of the temple are, are, the, are, are, are for everybody. Everybody's allowed in there. And this is where this is all happening. It's all happening in the place where everybody is supposed to be welcome, where everybody is supposed to have access to God and, and, and begin to learn and understand who he is. But the access to this is being, is being cut off by all these people who are traveling through and all of this business that's being done and all of this business that's being done in a corrupt way. <clears throat> and so Jesus he purges his temple of the corruption that's in it. And then he begins to say this. He says, he says, um, he uses two verses in particular. He uses Isaiah 56, 6 through 8. Oh, let me just say this real quick. Real quick, um, one thing too. We have to understand the temple. The temple was the pride of the people of Israel. 
It was, their, it was their national source of pride. When they looked at it, they were like, wow, look at the temple. The gold on it was so much, and it was polished so much that when the sun shone on it, you, you would have to like, oh, you'd have to kind of look away. And this was supposed to be this place where the people of Israel told the world around them who this God was. So Jesus, when we see this, we see Psalm 69.9 tells us this. It says, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So Jesus has a, a righteous indignation as he goes into the temple and he clears this out. And he uses these two verses, right? I'm going to get to those just in a second here. Matthew 24 says this. He says, this is Matthew's account, but he says when he left the temple and he was going away, his disciples, they pointed out to him the buildings of the temple. They said, wow, look at this temple. Isn't it amazing? But it says he answered them. He said, do you see all these? Do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So Jesus now is prophesying the destruction of this temple. This thing where, where, where the Jewish people believe that this is their only access to God, that this is your only access to God, this is anyone's only access to God, only they're making it very difficult for people to access God by charging, by doing all of this business in all of these different ways, charging exorbitantly and, 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 and ripping people off on the, on the price of the sacrifice and these kinds of things. So Jesus uses two specific Old Testament um, Verses, Isaiah 56, 6 through 8, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So, so Jesus is saying this. He's saying the very function and the structure of the temple and what it's meant to do and what it's meant to be is being corrupted and violated and it's operating in a wrong way. Is This is supposed to be a place where anybody can come. This is a house of prayer. It's not an exclusive place. It's an open invitation for all the nations. So God's intent was always to make himself known to everyone. The, the very duty of the people of Israel was to, was to make proselytes, to, to go and to tell the world about this one true God, to speak into the world around them. They only had the privilege of getting the revelation and having that relationship with God. But it was always meant to go out. And this is what Jesus is saying, is that, is that Jesus is saying, I'm about to open the door to the Gentiles here. I'm, I'm about to throw the door open. And to be honest with you, the Jews were hoping that Jesus was going to eradicate the, the Gentiles and just get rid of them. Thank goodness for all us Gentiles in here, that wasn't the case. Jesus then used another scripture, Jeremiah 7, 11. Has the house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. 
Again, Jesus had already been there. He's seen it. He understands. He knows what's going on. And you see, Jeremiah at this point is prophesying the destruction of the first temple. So when Jesus uses this prophecy, this part of scripture, it's very plain to them, I think, too, that Jesus is now prophetically saying this one's going to fall also. That this temple, as beautiful as it is, that it's going to fall as well. It was a den of thieves, he said. And just as the tree had left Jesus hungry and unsatisfied, so did what was going on within the temple. It was equally just as unsatisfying. They were not fulfilling their intended functions. So it goes on, and, and we read here, it says that uh, they passed by in the morning. Oh, excuse me. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking ways to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So, so Jesus has probably garnered a lot of support, in all honesty, for what he's just done. As a matter of fact, this is the second time he's cleansed the temple. And because the people recognize and they see the corruption and they're fed up and they're done with it, he probably has a lot of support. And so, so it says here that the leaders, that they feared him because of the crowd and their astonishment at him, but they start to think about how are we going to get rid of this guy? How are we going to get an end to this? It says then that they went in the evening, they, they went out of the city. And when it says that they went out of, this was just the habit of Jesus, that when he was in Jerusalem, he stayed in Bethany. So, so all the time, he's not running away. He just went out of the city because he's staying with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, most likely. And so then again, the next day, as they passed by in the morning, they're heading back to Jerusalem again. They saw the fig tree withered to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them this, have faith in God. Have faith in God. This becomes then the recipe, the recipe for what they're to do. And as they um, are about to go through some very difficult times, as they're about to, to see some really hard things, as ultimately they're gonna, many of them are going to witness the destruction of this temple that they hold so dear, Jesus gives them a recipe. And what does it begin with? It says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. Just start there. When you look at this tree and you recognize that it was intended to do this, and the object lesson for us is that this all starts with our faith, with our faith in God. It goes on to say this. It says, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received, and it will be yours. So Jesus then says, hey, you just asked this mountain to be taken and thrown into the sea, and that was, a, that was a regular metaphor for just a really troubling time great difficulties, struggles in your life. It was, it was moving mountains. We say the same kind of thing today. You know, we need, I need God to move a mountain. And what we're saying is that we're, we're not really saying that, you know, we really want the bighorns tossed over in the sea. 
what we're saying is, is that there's this really deep struggle, and Jesus is telling us and reminding us when you're in a deep struggle in your life, when it's hard and it's painful, and you're going through things that you don't understand and you didn't ask for, just know that I'm calling you to have faith. And I'm calling you to have faith in God. And I want to really point this out here because now it begins to talk about if you pray about something, then pray about it as if you've already received it. And it goes to talk a lot about faith. But I want to remind us that God has not called us to have faith in faith. God has called us to have faith in God. Many times it's been a, it's been a, a huge abuse within the church that people begin to tell other people, if you just had more faith, your prayers would be answered, or you'd be healed, or this would happen, or that would happen. You see, God is not calling us to have faith in faith. He's calling us to have faith in God. But when we have faith in God, and, and when, when we're rooted into that right place, when, when our roots are going deep into Him, some interesting things begins to happen. And one of those things is, is that we begin to agree with God. We begin to agree with God, and our prayer life begins to shift. And instead of us just praying random things for what we think, you know, God, I'm, I'm, I'm believing that I'm, I'm getting a brand new truck, and, and I'm believing that that's true, and, and I have, you know, we actually begin to shift our prayers towards the heart of God. And when our prayers are matching the very thing that the God of the universe, the one who has unlimited power and potential and ability, has, whenever our prayers are matching up with that, those are the very prayers that God is moving and answering and, and so, so, so God tells us, you know, and it reminds us in James, too, that, that, that when we ask, we, we, we ask and we, we don't waffle. Because if we begin to waffle in, our, in, in that, if we don't continue to put our faith in God and look to Him and to Him alone, then we'll be like tossed to and fro, like, right? Tossed, wherever the wind blows, whatever the next thing is, we'll live our lives, and that will have a result in our lives and that we'll be unstable in everything that we do. So Jesus gives the answer here. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, uh, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Like, wow, wait a minute. Um, that's, that, that seems like a big order, right? To forgive so that you could have been, so that you might be forgiven. But, you know, this is just in harmony with God's people. You see, forgiveness can be a process, and, and sometimes we wonder, you know, like, well, man, what does that mean? Like, like if I haven't worked through or, you know, it, what it means, I think, is this. It, mean, it means that your heart is, is, is postured towards forgiveness because you understand the necessity of forgiveness because you understand the reality of what you've been forgiven of. And when we understand the reality of what we've been forgiven of, then forgiveness and the extension of grace and forgiveness becomes a component of the Christian life. We just know we have to get there. We always know that forgiveness is necessary that it's part, of, it's part of this thing in a heart that just holds on to unforgiveness and will not let go and will not yield and will just only hold to bitterness and anger and unforgiveness. That's a heart that just, it sits in a very dangerous place. That's a heart that may not have ever experienced the forgiveness of Jesus. But the heart that has experienced the forgiveness of that, then forgiveness 
becomes a component. It becomes a part of the life. And we always recognize that wherever we might be in the process of, of, of forgiveness, that we can always speak forgiveness into the situation. And I believe that when we release forgiveness, when we're able to just say, even just between our, maybe ourselves and God, I forgive this or that or such and such or this person, that it begins a process of healing. It takes us outside of being chained to an event of the past, and it sets us free into, into the future, and it sets us free into what's hopeful and good. It's the basis of those who have trusted Jesus. And therefore, we must have an understanding of the necessity of forgiveness. So what's the takeaway for us? Well, part of the takeaway for us is this. We're the temple. We're the temple now. Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He lives in the heart of his people, right? It's that amazing, incomprehensible exchange that when we say yes to Jesus, that the Holy Spirit comes and it resides within the hearts of God's people. And he begins to reveal spiritual truth and reality to us and he, and he speaks to us and he, and he walks with us and he empowers us. But we now are the temple. 1 Peter 2.5 reminds us, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So now people are meant to be able to come to us and the, and the takeaway maybe on this is that is there fruit on the tree? Is there fruit on the tree? Is, is there satisfaction? Is there something that somebody can come into our, my life or your life and can they get something that might nourish them and satisfy them? And, and then the next thing is that maybe in our temple, maybe we should allow the Lord to do a little bit of cleansing. Maybe there's the reality that, that inside of us, inside of me, there's a need and there's a necessity for Jesus to come in and overturn some tables, to run some stuff out of there because it's corrupt on the inside of here. There's problems on the inside of here and I need to invite him in and know that, that this purging, cleansing thing that he wants to do inside of me is a good thing. It's not a violent and a, and a mean or angry thing. As a matter of fact, he owns me. If you're in Christ, you've been purchased too. And, and so for him to come in and do a work and cleanse, it's again, he's not going into somebody else's house. I saw a track one time, I, I liked it, and it was, it was about this idea that, that like, on the inside, like, like maybe grandma, you ever remember being around friends or somebody whose grandma or mom or somebody had like that one room that was like perfect, but you couldn't use it? I had a friend like that. I mean, that his mom kept a living room, this one living room, but nobody could use it. You couldn't sit in it. It was just for show, you know? That's it. It didn't have really a function other than to be impressive. And sometimes that's how we are when we start to look at this. We're, we're willing to let Jesus into that spot or let him walk by and look at it 
Maybe sometimes we'll let him into the living room or the kitchen or something like that, you know? Comedian did this, and it's funny. It was so funny. Uh, 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 junior. Uh, oh, shoot. I'm forgetting his name. Anyway, he said, you know, but sometimes Jesus goes to that back bedroom, and he's like, whoo, man, it stinks back here. <laughs> but you're like, no, that door's locked. I'm not letting you in there. But see, he's the only one. He's the only one that is able to go in and take the mop and take the bucket and go in and cleanse that place in the way that we really need it. So we're going to shift now. We're going to shift into communion, okay? And, and if you've been around, you, you know that a little bit, you, you, you know that last week we didn't do communion, um, I, I, I heard from some folks about that a little bit, and, and so I want to explain a little bit about why I put communion off for a week. And, and it's, it, it has to do from 1 Corinthians 11, which is our instruction on the Lord's Supper. Verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11, it says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and one another gets drunk. What? Don't you have, not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And so certainly what we're talking about is a meal. When, when they did communion, they didn't get a thimble full of juice and a wafer. They, they took a meal together. But in their meal, Paul is addressing this, and he's addressing in particular the division that is in there. And he makes the note, and he tells them that when that's the case, and if you're living in that place, you're really not participating in the Lord's Supper. And so I thought last week, knowing that there was some struggles, it'd be a good chance just to take a second and reflect and take a week off, take a break. But at the same time, communion is incredibly important. And communion is this, see, is that is it, it focuses us back on the Lord. And it says this, for I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What does it do? It focuses back on the solution. It takes our, our attention off of us and the struggles that we're having, and it puts it on him, and that's a good thing. He then goes on to say in verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread of, and, or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and the drink of the cup. And it goes on to even talk about, like, maybe you don't even understand. Maybe we don't even always understand the consequences. But it goes on to say, like, you know, some of you are even sick because of this and stuff. 
So, so I want to continue to 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 caution and, and to remind that that you know that if you're you know in a spot and you're just you haven't found a way through it and you're really struggling, that you know I'm going to leave that between you and God. But I want to also emphasize this: communion is for us sinful people, right? It just is. It's for us, and it's meant to focus us off of our own struggles, off of our own selfishness, and onto the selfless act of what Jesus has done for us. And so it's a unifying thing. It's meant to be a common union, communion. And that common union, regardless of where we're sitting, regardless of what we're struggling with, regardless of how we feel on certain things, our common union is still the cross. It's still Jesus and him crucified and what he's purchased and done for us. Regardless if we're at odds a little bit with one another, we still, if we're in Christ, we still have a common union. We do thank you, Jesus. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that you um, have done for us what is impossible for us to do, that you've, you've modeled and you've shown us how to live and how to be. And we're grateful. We're thankful for for all that you've done for us, Lord. And we just thank you that, that you don't dwell in temples made by human hands, that you're, that you're not somewhere else, but that you're a present and that you're here with us even this day, that, you, that your spirit abides here and it's in this place, it's in us, it's in your people. And Lord, we're just asking too that, that you would do a work in these temples. Lord, that you would do a mighty work that we would look back and we would say, the Lord showed up in a way that blew us away. So we're thankful. We're thankful for this day. We're thankful for the life that we have. We're thankful that, that you've created us to praise you and, and to bear fruit. I'm praying over each and every person here this day that, that they would bear the fruit that you prepared in advance that might come into their life, that they would walk in the things that you're calling them to, that they would find the fulfillment of the ministry that you have for them and that you would bless them, that you would, Lord, help us that we might be a blessing to Sheridan, to our community. Help us to not be an exclusive club or, or something or, 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 or just afraid to talk or, or invite people, but that we would really just recognize that this is a place for all nations, for all people, that this is a level ground here that you purchased you paid for the sins of the whole world so that it might be made possible for whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. So, Lord, we're grateful for this day. We pray over just our time this afternoon and just uh, just the celebration. We pray you be with us, Lord. Pray you guide us, that we will all just be led by you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.